This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Jill Bennett in for Simi this morning. Well, a scary story out of the Bahamas. Police there are investigating the three the deaths of three American tourists at a Sandals resort. One other tra- taken to hospital. Joining us with the very latest on this is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Good morning. What do we know about what happened at this resort? So we know very little, but we do have some details from Bahamian authorities along with U.S. officials. And from what we gather from police in the Bahamas who held an update yesterday or provided an update yesterday, is that of the four people uh, who are a part of this investigation now, all four uh, were uh, visiting with the the kind of um, resort's medical unit on Thursday complaining uh, of nausea and complaining of just general unwell feelings. Uh, and that was around 11 o'clock at night on Thursday local time, and then by 8.30 in the morning, three of those four uh, people that were visiting that resort were dead, with that fourth, as you had mentioned, taken to a hospital, and this has now sparked an investigation as to what may have caused them. This is uh, uh, linked to and involving both Bahamian officials and officials in the U.S. and uh, with the State Department overlooking all of this uh, because of the deaths of Americans overseas. Uh, And so are they looking at, uh, uh, well, I know they've said that uh, they don't suspect foul play at this point, I guess, are they looking at what these people ate or what uh, maybe something environmental? Yeah, I mean, look, that's where where this is likely heading to. We know that a pathology report and autopsies were being conducted yesterday uh, and that the information from those reports would likely be available sometime in the next seven days. But according to officials at the report, both of these couples who were separate couples, both of them uh, involving people over the age of 68 at different restaurants the night before. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're ruling out the, the possibility that this could potentially be from some form uh, of ingested uh, issue from the restaurant given the fact that it was two different restaurants and nobody else came forward with these uh, with these feelings of being unwell. Uh, there is information from the woman who's in hospital right now that as she awoke in the morning, uh, finding her husband to be uh, unresponsive, uh, slumped against a bathroom wall, she was lying in her bed with, um, with puffed up legs, puffed up arms, and an inability to move them and was screaming out for help uh, in order to get somebody to come into the room. So there is a possibility here that this could be something like carbon monoxide. The people at the Sandals resort say that the resort itself is safe uh, and the state department came out yesterday to say that while they're not going to get into the details of this citing privacy reasons that if there is information that comes to light from this investigation that could be of uh, a benefit to the broader american public that that information would be brought out um you know at a, at a, at a fairly rapid clip Hmm, you've got to think, though, uh, even by saying, they're, though they're saying that the resort is safe, uh, you've got to think people might think twice now uh, about staying there while this investigation is still going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's going to be cleanup control for uh, for the uh, resort's uh, media team and for their abilities to ensure that people who are feeling, uh, you know, uncomfortable at the resort at the resort uh, are going to to stay in place. Uh, the, the Sandals Resort came out yesterday and said that their first and foremost responsibility is to that of the safety of the people that are on their grounds uh, and that they are fully cooperating in an investigation. But at the same time, they also say uh, that their uh, that their grounds are safe right now. Uh, there are uh, 
investigators and scientists who have taken samples not only from parts of the resort, but from the labs themselves, uh, from the rooms themselves, into labs to try and figure out what what might have caused the deaths uh, of these four people. But as you had mentioned, this is not being deemed some kind of suspicious death. There was no uh, overt signs of foul play here. Uh, so there is a concern here that this was something that was linked to the rooms themselves. And it's worth pointing out that this is not an inexpensive resort. These are villas that these two couples were staying in that cost thousands of dollars uh, U.S. a night. So, you know, this is just adding more kind of uh, fuel to to an investigation. But it is leaving some people at this resort and potentially people who are on their way to this resort second guessing whether they should go or not. Mm, yeah, I'm not surprised by that at all. And I would imagine, too, the fact that they were all in their 60s at this point, do we think that that, that was just a coincidence or, or is there any reason to believe that age plays a factor? I mean, look, you know, age can always play a factor uh, in any death. You know, this is something that that happens not just in in this kind of investigation. You know, if we look back over the last two years, even of the pandemic, age oftentimes can factor into something. Uh, that is something that pathology reports will be able to answer. That's something that the autopsy uh, is going to be able to answer. You can imagine uh, that nobody really wants to get ahead of what any of this investigation is going to say, ultimately because uh, you know they want to err on the side of caution uh, and of safety. And and from what we're hearing from people at the resort that this is 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 a tragic accident this is nothing um that that should cause some kind of fear for people going forward and whether or not age or whether or not gender or whether or not uh any kind of pre-existing factor played into the deaths of these four people uh you know is still to be known given the fact that one of these four did survive though that could provide additional information once these reports come out and this is a big tourist spot isn't it for not only people from florida but a lot of americans yeah absolutely it is i mean the bahamas are are one of the kind of top go-to destinations of the top side uh, of the caribbean you know thousands upon thousands of people flock in every single day uh, and again it's this is a resort that is not an inexpensive resort so you're going after kind of a key clientele here uh, and and one would think that a resort of this caliber uh, is going to keep itself in kind of a, a tip-top condition to ensure that they pass all of their inspections and to ensure uh, that it doesn't kind of wind up on, on a red list or a red flag list for any kind of international organization that might be doing looks at that. So this is all going to be a part and parcel with that resort. But given the fact that three of these four people did die in a very quick period of time, because again, they went to a doctor's office on Thursday night and by Friday morning, they were dead. This is going to be something that, uh, you know, that, that is impactful for uh, the families, but also impactful for the resort itself. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for bringing us the very latest on this. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, why don't the wages of Canadians ever seem to go up in step with how the price of everything else is going up? That is one of the questions, and uh, Douglas Todd has written a piece about this in the Vancouver Sun, about uh, a little part of the budget that didn't get a whole lot of attention when the budget was released. But it certainly is a chart that shows some, well, some interesting, perhaps, warnings, and it has to do with Canadians and where we're we're headed as far as wages and growth when it comes to wages. Quoted in that article is David Williams, the Vice President of Policy for the Business Council of BC. And David Williams joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Joe. Great to be with you. Uh, well, thanks for doing this. What are the concerns? And when we look not only at this chart in the budget, but in general, wages and where we're going and perhaps where we're falling behind? Yeah, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, you know, this is really about the economic pie in Canada and whether it's growing or not. 
We can have all sorts of discussions about how it's distributed. What the OED, OECD, um, which is a, a you know global think tank um, for 38 advanced economies, what it's saying is that our economic pie is not going to be growing very much. In fact, it's the worst performing economy, uh, they think, over the next 10 years and the 30 years after that. So Canadians entering the workforce today uh, are looking at 40 years, basically, almost their entire working lives, um, where the economy is simply not growing very much and the economic pie uh, is, is not growing very much. There's not much available uh, to be distributed among people. And why is that? Uh, the, the principal reason is that um, you know what what gives you a, a large economic pie is your productivity. So that's all about how well we use labour. You need to have you know great equipment, great technology, great innovation, great R and D, and need to take your good ideas and you need to operate them at scale. And we don't do that. Uh, and in fact, from 2030 to 2060, uh, the OECD sees us with the lowest uh, productivity performance. Uh, of any country um, for 30 solid years, which is quite incredible. I think it's a bit of a boiling frog situation, Jill. I mean, we've been talking about Canada having uh, a poor productivity performance uh, since about 2000. And and we kind of got away with it for a while, I think, in Canada, because we've had such, we've had these commodity price booms, um, you know, where the prices prices for our exports have been really uh, favourable at times. And so we really haven't had to worry as much about about productivity, I think it's kind of smack up on us. So I think this chart being put into um, you know, page 25 of the federal budget is a bit of a wake-up call to Canada to say, look, you know, this is this is what other people are seeing overseas. They rate us last, um, you know, out of 38 uh, out of 38 countries. But I don't sense that the federal government know, knows what to do about it just yet. Uh, we heard uh, or reaction from the federal government from uh, the the finance minister was uh, saying, well, perhaps the reason that the wages aren't great or the wages aren't growing as fast is because businesses haven't made those investments uh, the same as other countries. How do you respond to that? Yeah, there's definitely investment in Canada uh, is, is is fairly low. Um, it's uh, if you look at investment business investment. On a per worker basis, it's been falling across most asset types for a number of years, um, and in fact, so much so that the capital stock—so that's the the grand total of all um, machinery, equipment, structures, uh, innovation, software, R&D—the grand total of all that in Canada on a per worker basis. Um, some research from the C.D. Howe Institute shows that it's actually shrinking. Um, you know, I, I've been a professional economist for 25 years. I didn't even think that was possible <laughs> that a country could have a shrinking capital stock on a per worker basis. Uh, and it just takes a, a sort of a Pollyanna type thinking to, to, to think that this is not going to lead to lower growth in, in real incomes over time. It's a, it's a very worrying trend. Um, and again, you know, I think we need to see the federal government uh, turn its mind to some of these um, you know, structural issues uh, in the Canadian economy. Uh, you also made a comment or referenced how past generations uh, of young people would go into the workforce and uh, would, would have a pretty optimistic view of uh, making a good income, maybe being able to, to purchase things and, and having that good income throughout their work life. Uh, but that's shifted. So what, what has caused that shift or, or what do you see shifting there? Well, again, your living standards for a country are determined by, by how well you're able to use labour, how, how productive you are. 
I mean, when my uh, when my mum and dad entered the workforce, um, you know, I can't even remember when that was. Well, I was going to remember when that was, but it was a long time ago. Uh, was it the sixties? I think. And you know, in those days when they entered the workforce, um, they could expect their real incomes to double uh, during their working life. So I had I had double the standard of living that my parents had when I entered the workforce. Um, this is a very very favourable tailwind. That's gone. That's gone. Uh, now, because of how uh, the, our low rate of labour productivity growth in Canada, it's going to take something like three to four generations or more like 120 to 140 years in order to, to get that same result. Uh, and the reason is we're just not deploying enough capital. We're not doing enough business investment. We're not doing uh, enough R&D. We're not doing enough innovation. And we're not scaling. We're, we're typically very small companies in Canada. Um, we, we struggle to grow them to scale. Um, you know, we're not a big exporting country. We used to be, um, but the, the, our trade, our exports relative to GDP uh, has been actually falling over the last uh, 20 years. So, you know, most other countries are increasing their openness to, tra- to trade. They're taking on the world's ideas and they're competing. Uh, Canada has done the opposite. Canada's become more insular. Um, it's less trade orientated. Uh, it's just not, a, it doesn't seem to be a, a priority in Canada uh, either to trade within, with, our, with ourselves between provinces or indeed trading with the rest of the world. And is that because we're, we're not attractive to companies as far as our tax structure or how, how we try and, and lure businesses? We're just simply not competing with, with the, what it's like, the atmosphere or what the landscape is like in other countries? Yeah, I, I think we have a pretty inefficient tax system. I mean, you know, the, the, the litmus test, I guess, is well, when was the last time you had a holistic review? Uh, of your tax system. Uh, and in Canada, it was in the 1960s. Uh, you can probably tell from my accent, I, I hail from overseas, from Australia. And, uh, you know, there were, there were four comprehensive tax reviews in about 20 years uh, in Australia. Um, lots of looking at, you know, we need to raise a dollar of revenue. What's the most efficient way to raise that money? You know, that, that it's the least distortion on the economy, costs us the least amount of economic activity to raise the revenue. Um, that kind of analysis really hasn't taken place, I think, in, in Canada in a, at a, in a comprehensive way uh, since the 60s. So it's, it's really overdue to start looking at these things in a holistic way. It's not about you know, a tax incentive to this group or that group. It's really looking at it holistically. That's what I think is long overdue. And one, one other question, just going back to how you mentioned kind of past generations, how does housing play into this, do you think, given that if we look back at those generations, you could buy a house for a roughly one year salary. I mean, that's not even near possible now with somebody entering the workforce, especially in BC. So how does that play into it? Yeah, well, Jill, I mean, we're about the we're about the fifth we have about the fifth most indebted household sector in the world. Most of that is mortgage debt. It's not a coincidence that we also have, you know, the highest one of the highest ratios of uh, established house prices to incomes uh, in the world as well. Right? You know, just looking at the last five years, we've had about four hundred and eighty billion dollars of extra mortgage debt created. Um, so we're doing a lot of housing activity. We're doing a lot of housing borrowing. Uh, it's a big focus for the federal government. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a good idea to sort of have a look, step back from, from that, look at the economy in total and say, well, we're certainly doing a lot of housing, um, but we're not doing a lot of business investment, innovation, scaling up. Um, we're, not, uh, we're not investing in the sorts of technologies that we need uh, for the future. And, and it's showing up in our 
in our in this OECD uh, projection that for the next 40 years we're going to be the worst performing economy out of 38 advanced countries. Um, and that means Canadian living standards are about to slip. All right, uh, David Williams, on that note, uh, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, for talking about this. Thanks very much, Jill. Great to be with you. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we are joined by Ellis Ross, BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. Ellis Ross, thank you so much for making some time for us this morning. Not a problem. Glad to be here. I wanted to talk to you about uh, something you shared on social media yesterday, and it's a tweet that says, good news, exclamation point, BCNDP confirmed the coastal gas link pipeline will be completed, and uh, then goes on and talks a bit more about negotiations. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what was behind you putting that tweet out? Well, I've been actually advocating for uh, LNG ever since 2004. And it was actually First Nations that actually brought the LNG uh, potential to BC uh, right up until 2011, until Chrissy Clark actually got into power. And th- throughout that time, I saw a little bit of uh, opposition uh, from political parties like the NDP or the Green Party. I saw a little protest groups, but I never saw anything like what I saw uh, outside Houston, where it actually uh, devolved into violence. And so my only question throughout all of this was, okay, now that the, the BCNDP have set up negotiations to, to kind of settle out one of the most complicated topics in Canadian uh, governance, meaning rights and title, would that affect the, the completion of the LNG pipeline that's actually feeding gas to Kitimat? And the Minister of the Indigenous Affairs confirmed that the negotiations regarding what suit rights and title would not affect the completion of the pipeline. So I was, I was quite relieved at that. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact, so so a couple of things happening with Coastal GasLink as well. The company itself uh, recently put out some information saying that two of the eight sections are 100% complete, uh, but we also know that they were just recently fined as well, about $170,000 for uh, issues around erosion and sediment. Uh, do you have any concerns about that, given that they've just been handed that fine? Um, not necessarily, because uh, underneath the environmental certificate, uh, the, the environmental certificate is just a basically a, a promissory type certificate, and all the permitting still has to happen. So, and th- this happens for mining, it happens for forestry. There's always infractions. And for me, what it, what I believe is that okay, the system is actually working. It's designed to actually catch infractions and penalize for for some of the incidents that could have been. Uh, so, I like the fact that the BC Environmental Assessment Office is doing its job. Uh, you mentioned as well, and, and certainly people will remember the violence at that site and the damage that was caused at that coastal gas link site. How do you kind of bring, I mean, you're never going to bring people who are opposed to this and people who are for this together 100%, but how do you continue with a project like this and continue to make sure it gets support? Well, come up with the facts. Uh, come up with the idea that it's actually First Nations that brought this potential to BC. It wasn't the BC government. And the other thing is that uh, we're actually talking about building a province. And in that case, we're talking about affordability. We're talking about an energy crisis happening in Europe. We're talking about uh, China and India who want to get off coal. And if, if you actually convert all these coal plants to LNG, you're actually reducing emissions by 50%. And in light of all of this, it, it still it still puzzles me on why in BC we don't have an energy policy for domestic purposes, for affordability, or internationally 
to actually help some of our allies over in Europe or China, India, people that really need our energy, our abundant source of clean, ethical energy. Uh, do you find that that argument sometimes gets lost, though? Like you said, uh, w- the, we've seen uh, people questioning uh, what Soton writes. Uh, certainly, there have been questions uh, from people nowhere near the, the coastal gas link camp, uh, other parts of the country, other parts of the world. Uh, does that argument, the, the argument that you just made about the benefits of this, does it get lost? Oh, without a doubt. And in fact, in saying that, Aboriginal rights and title is a specific topic it's actually, it's not what people think it is. So when people are out there and you're actually uh, protesting the idea of what certain rights not being upheld, it's actually the opposite. Uh, the, the rights and title case law that's been established in the courts of BC and Canada, for that matter, have been pretty clear in terms of direction given to its leaders. Right now, everybody's ignoring that case law. And that's at the detriment of First Nations, that's at the detriment of British Columbians. And it's not really putting us on a pathway as a province to be independent. I mean, if anything, Germany's shown us is that dependent on a foreign, let's face it, Putin is not a good place to be. I mean, right now, Europe is being destabilized by the energy politics that's happening between Russia and Germany. We don't want BC to be like that. We want to be independent in terms of energy security. And we want the affordability that comes with good sources of clean energy. What kind of a response uh, have you been getting, not only to your stand on this, but also uh, the tweet you sent out? Because it it is still, it can be, uh, as you would know, a a divisive issue. What kind of a response have you been getting? I I actually, those types of tweets, because I make a lot of tweets, but uh, (laughs) when it comes to uh, energy independence or security, I get a lot of good, favorable response. And I just think the silent majority has got to start speaking up. We've been ruled uh, too long by the vocal minority. And you know what? I've got the best interest of uh, British Columbians at heart. And I've got the, the best interest of our future at heart. I want to see my kids and grandkids grow up in a safe, stable, secure future. I want them to be able to get a mortgage, go on vacation, get an RSP. Uh, and right now, I just don't see that happening if we don't get away from the, the energy politics that's happening here in B.C., all right. To Ellis Ross, I appreciate again. Thank you so much for making the time for us this morning. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi today. Well, we've been talking about the high price of gas and how that is kind of changing. Maybe how many trips you make to the grocery store. Maybe you've found a different way to go to work if you're working from the office. But what about tourism as we head into a busier time for tourists in this province? Will people be changing their plans to try and save a bit of money? Well, Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on the price of fuel going up? We now know that the fuel chur- surcharge on BC ferries is going up. Is, are you concerned that's going to have an impact on tourism? Well, it's difficult to say. This kind of happens every year around this time. We see the fuel price prices rising. And certainly in years past, perhaps, we've seen people alter their plans. This year, though, From what I'm hearing, and I'm attending the Impact Conference in Victoria this week, and I've talked to a lot of people who are saying there's such pent-up demand that it seems that visitors are willing to 
spend the money that they've saved over the course of the pandemic because they want to go on vacation. So if it means higher gas prices, they'll absorb that, at least for the time being. But it could be at the expense of other segments of the tourism industry. So perhaps they aren't going to as many attractions or taking uh, some of the tours that they might normally or eating uh, less in restaurants or staying in a more inexpensive uh, hotel. So there are other adjustments that people are making, particularly those on a budget. But on the other hand, uh, it seems that there's such pent-up demand, people are wanting to travel anyway, and they'll absorb it. Right. Are there concerns, though, that, uh, say, if you're, you're somebody in B.C., that uh, you were planning a road trip in B.C., but if you kind of crunch the numbers and think, well, actually, if I head across the border and go into the States, it's going to be a lot cheaper, that people might shift their plans that way? Yes, that's a good point. But on the other hand, you're still paying 30% more for everything else. So gas is cheaper and you're saving some money there. But having recently returned from a vacation in the U.S., uh, everything's gone up in price as well. Accommodation, food, travel, car rentals. So it's an expensive vacation to be sure. But I think where you might see an impact is people that were planning a road trip throughout the province or perhaps a couple of provinces over may not go as far. They may actually stay a bit closer to home. And also where it hits the wallet in particular is for those that have RVs or boats or some of the other so-called toys, if you will, they may not uh, pursue those activities uh, as much as before or at least curtail those activities somewhat just because of the high gas prices. But As we know, everything has gone up in price, and tourism operators are affected by higher prices for supplies, including food and and other provisions that they need to conduct their business. So it's it's going to hit people in the wallet book, in the wallet and uh, in the pocketbook, and, and certainly that goes for both travelers and tourism operators. And you mentioned, too, with the, the difference in the dollar with the people in the United States. Does that work in our favor, though, or, or, and especially with uh, the restrictions at the border having eased? Does that work more in the favor of British Columbians or tourism in, in this province in that it is still attractive for visitors from the States? It certainly does, no question. And we often see that U.S. visitors are willing to spend more on a hotel room, by way of example, that Canadians may not, simply because of that exchange rate. Their dollar obviously stretches a whole lot further, so they're not as price sensitive. But really, it's mostly U.S. uh, residents in the border uh, states that would know the difference in the dollar. Others don't pay as close attention as we think they do. Nonetheless, it's something that certainly marketers are well aware of and talking about, but it's it's not at the top of the list. Nonetheless, I, I think when you see Americans uh, come here and they, uh, they're essentially paying what they might pay at home, but they have a 30% advantage, they're pleasantly surprised and take advantage to be sure. Uh, and what about the cruise ship industry? I know it doesn't uh, have an impact perhaps throughout the entire province, but for Vancouver and Victoria, welcoming back cruise ships this year, uh, how how much is that going to play into it or have an impact, do you think? 
Well, as you know, the cruise ship industry in British Columbia is worth close to $3 billion. And not having cruise ships the last couple of years, you've seen the impact. Restaurants closing, retailers, uh, attractions really hurting by not having the cruise visitors here. So now that they're back and as they ramp up with uh, full capacity on the cruise ships, you're starting to see a lot of activity downtown in the restaurants and attractions and for the transportation companies and so on that they have been waiting for. And uh, it's certainly welcome. And you're starting to see um, uh, an industry that is well down the path to rebuilding. Uh, there's lots of bookings in uh, the bigger centres in particular, but really all over the province. The Okanagan has, uh, has good business on the books this summer. Victoria, Vancouver... Some of that is fueled by cruise passengers who are not only spending time on the ship from Vancouver to Alaska or Victoria to Alaska, but spending time in the province afterward. And so it's it's a, a very good boost for tourism to our province. And just getting back to fuel costs and, and how the cost of everything is going up, but we are seeing in Alberta that uh, they are continuing as far as not pro- uh, collecting the provincial tax at that, that 13 cents per litre. Uh, would you like to see BC do something similar to at least try and keep people in BC or to make it seem a bit more attractive when it comes to the cost of gas? Well, no question. <laughs> Any time we can see a break, uh, whether it's relieving taxes for a prescribed period of time or a rebate similar to what uh, the province has been offering through ICBC, that is helpful to people. Um, So that would certainly be welcome. It's not expected by any stretch. uh, But on the other hand, uh, anything will help. And certainly for people planning a vacation this summer, uh, as we talked about, gas is a consideration, but hopefully we won't see too much of an impact on tourism. And in fact, as I talked about earlier, with the pent-up demand so far, we haven't seen anything But that's not to suggest that it won't come, especially if prices continue to rise. Right. And uh, people watching that very, very closely. Uh, Well, what about employees? I know when we've talked in the past, uh, getting kind of ramped up again and getting ready to invite tourists back and to host tourists. But of course, we see help wanted signs in a lot of places and uh, a lack of staff. How are we doing on that front? still a big issue across the board. I think there are many, many operators that could be operating at at full capacity now, but can't simply because there aren't enough people to service the guests that they have. So we've seen hotel general managers working the front desk. We've seen people at attractions who are general managers or CEOs working the coffee bar. That's how desperate uh, some of the operators are. And I think that'll be the case right through the summer. So in many respects, what we're trying to do is, of course, temper our guests' expectation. Look, people are doing the best that they can. We just don't have enough staff to be able to open that wing of the hotel or to be able to open that restaurant at lunchtime, or perhaps we've got to cut hours for our retail operation. It does have an impact, but we're not the only uh, province certainly impacted by uh, labor shortages. It's really across Canada and many parts of the world. We just don't have enough people working in our industry again after the pandemic. So hopefully as guests become more educated and they recognize it's not the premises fault, um, we will 
uh, find the means to be able to service them well, and they'll return, recognizing that things will hopefully change sometime down the road. And what is needed to make that change or to get the staff levels back up? Well, there's a lot of things that could happen. I think employers are doing everything they can. They're offering flexible work packages, really good pay, opportunities for people to advance in their careers. We have to be working with post-secondary institutions. We have to be working with even uh, grade schools to certainly talk about the job opportunities that are available in industry. We really have to talk about what the industry represents, why it's important, how people can can uh, fashion a career out of tourism, the types of jobs that are needed. It's really creating that awareness and also building back the confidence that this is an industry that uh, can thrive once again. It survived the pandemic for the most part, although we did lose some businesses. But this is an industry that will grow again. It will change, to be sure, in the future. But at the same time, there are tremendous opportunities, and it's really not only a job or a career, it's a lifestyle, too, that is very appealing to many. All right. Uh, Walt Judas, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill.